This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'm Allison Nathan, Senior Strategist in Goldman Sachs Research and creator and editor of the firm's Top of Mind Report. In this episode, we're focusing on the recent regulatory tightening cycle in China and President Xi Jinping's new common prosperity agenda to promote more sustainable and equitable growth. We touched on this topic in a recent episode, but the situation has continued to evolve with regulations targeting specific sectors now wiping out more than a trillion and a half dollars of market cap from Chinese equities since their recent peak in mid-February. Here we focus on what these ongoing regulatory and policy shifts, as well as potential future actions, might mean for the Chinese economy, its markets, and beyond. We first turn to a number of China watchers to better understand the motivations behind the government's actions and whether they mark a meaningful shift in the relationship between the government and the private sector in China. Fred Hu, founder, chairman, and CEO of Primavera Capital, and David Lee, who is an economics professor at Tsinghua University, see the latest wave of regulations as largely consistent with the government's goal of achieving sustainable and socially responsible growth. And they argue that the government is targeting certain behaviors and industry practices, especially in the tech sector, that work against these goals rather than the private sector itself, and that this is not unlike actions that Europe, the U.S., and other major economies are taking to address the disruptive effects of digital innovation. Here's Lee. If you put the current regulatory changes into a larger context than just the previous five, three, two years, then you will see a big picture, a clear big picture. That is President Xi Jinping, since uh, coming to power in 2012, has been saying that China will seek quality growth rather than rapid growth. By quality growth, he actually meant three things. Number one, he wants economic growth to be based on innovation rather than consumption of resources and all intensifying investment. Second, he wants growth to be inclusive for the society or equitable for the whole society. And third, he wants growth to be environmentally sustainable. So these are the three long-term goals, innovation-based, socially equitable, and environmentally sustainable or low-carbon growth. That's his consistent policy. And he has been gradually pushing for these policies and recent changes, including the changes in regulating internet platforms and investment in the education sector are actually reflections of this trend. It's not a surprise if you put into a larger context, in short. And here's Fred Hu on the motivations behind the tech sector tightening in particular. I understand why China has stepped up efforts to regulate the tech sector. And it shouldn't be entirely surprising to the market either. China has one of the world's largest and the most successful tech sectors. And indeed, you know, people often compare China's tech industry to that in the U.S. in terms of size and scale and reach. So unquestionably, the tech sector, especially the rise of the so-called platform companies or the big tech, has had tremendous impact on the economy society and the daily lives of, you know, in China's hundreds of millions of ordinary citizens. I would say most of the impact is positive, you know, strong boost to business efficiency, productivity, and offering consumers connectivity, 
convenience, choices, value, and unprecedented access to information as well as to products and services anywhere and anytime. So the tech sector has played a massively beneficial, in fact, you know, indispensable role throughout the pandemic and has proven to be crucial in maintaining a degree of normalcy of ordinary citizens' daily life and making the economy more resilient. Nevertheless, the ubiquity and the growing role of tech companies has clearly also caused a variety of concerns in China as elsewhere. The three most common concerns are big tech's possible abuse of market power, data security, and consumer privacy. So the European Union has been by far the most proactive in scrutinizing the tech sector and has taken on quite aggressively big tech's market power and violations of privacy. China and the U.S., by contrast, has been relatively hands-off. That is, until recently, in the case of China, you know, when Beijing has started to impose sweeping and tight regulations across the board and the Biden administration has stepped up efforts as well. So if viewed from global lenses, China's regulatory intentions and goals are strikingly similar. The only difference, but a glaring one, is that China has taken a far stronger and some might argue a more heavy-handed approach to regulation and enforcement. But George Magnus, associate at the China Center at Oxford University, and Jude Blanchett, who is a China scholar at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, see these regulatory actions as mostly motivated by the government's desire for power and control and as an extension of a pattern of the Chinese state reasserting its dominance over the private sector since President Xi came to power in 2012. And they suspect strong political motivations behind these shifts in the run-up to the 20th National Party Congress of the Chinese Communist Party in the fall of next year, where President Xi is widely expected to break with decades of tradition and stay in power for a third term. Here's Magnus. I don't think this is business as usual. It's true that actually over the last 20, 25 years, China's use of law and of regulation have increased very significantly and to the point where in you know certainly before Xi Jinping came to power it was quite common for people to say that you know China had really made a kind of significant break with its previous proclivity to have government by diktat and by decree so that there was more certainty for business and so on as a consequence of these developments. The problem is that now under Xi Jinping's era or in his era, the use of law and regulation also has another purpose, which is basically to try to underscore the buttressing of the power of the Communist Party, which has been Xi Jinping's principal priority, uh, along with an attempt to enlarge the borders of the state, even at the expense of China's private sector, with a strategy basically to produce a new China model. I think this is what Xi Jinping's almost personal agenda is, is to create a new model and also to put the socialism back into the phrase of, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics. I mean, a lot of people have kind of taken that as rhetoric. And, you know, they're not really socialists. You know, it's a capitalist state. 
But actually, we'll see what happens in the next year or two. But it certainly feels and looks as though this is more statist and, you know, party controlling initiatives that we're seeing here than we have seen in the last few years. But certainly it's a discrete break from the China we knew over the last 20 or 30 years. What in particular makes you feel like this is more about power and expanding the state? Well, I think it's a question of kind of joining the dots, as they say. So if you took a snapshot of at any time over the last few years, really, well, let's say after 2013. In 2013, the end of the year, there was the third plenum of the 18th Congress that basically came out with this huge program of economic reform and bureaucratic change. And people were kind of falling over themselves saying, well, you see Xi Jinping is a closet reformer and he's just waiting for the opportunity. And this is the opportunity to re-energize reform. But in fact, as we know, really since then, nothing of that nature has really happened. In fact, reform as we kind of expected it and knew it has pretty much kind of ground to a halt. So if you took a snapshot of, let's say, you know, the cancellation of the Ant financial IPO or of the investigation into Didi after the IPO more recently in New York, or the meeting of the Central Committee for Financial and Economic Affairs, where the phrase common prosperity was elevated by Xi Jinping. If you look at all of these things in isolation, they kind of all look very orderly and, you know, yeah, you know, can understand this and it fits into a pattern and a scheme. But actually, I think you have to stand back a little bit and look at it in the big picture and see really a continuum in which this drive that Xi Jinping has tried to inject into China to revitalize this kind of Leninist idea of the purity of the party and that the party leads all, you know, as he said himself, you know, north, south, east and west. In other words, in all realms of economic and social and political life, the party is in the vanguard of leadership and people need to get on that train. So the introduction of Xi Jinping thought into primary schools, secondary schools and universities, the exhortation that is now coming out since last year of private sector executives to be, quote, taught, unquote, the significance of government policy and government priorities and that they need to take steps to show that they're following the party line. I mean, there's a big picture here, which is really about the supremacy and the controlling influence of the president within the party. But if you look around the world at Europe in particular, but also the U.S., you know, there has been this momentum towards scrutiny over some sectors, technology in particular, regulatory tightening in many ways on many levels. So how is this different from what we're really seeing in other places or is it not? How is it different? I think that we're going through our own so-called tech lash, right, which is this backlash against all powerful tech companies. And, you know, we don't know what they're doing with their data. And, you know, how do we exercise control over that? We go through the same kind of motions in a way of trying to figure out how we're going to do this. But what's different about China is that it's highly politicized and it's all about what serves the interest of the ruling party. I think we might argue that Democrats and Republicans in the United States or, you know, conservatives and Labour Party politicians in the UK also have vested interests, of course, in pursuing regulatory initiatives of different kind. But we do this really in the knowledge that at the end of the day, it is all subject to a legal system in which you do have supposedly, we believe, neutral contract enforcement and the government can get its nose bloodied if it kind of steps out of line. 
And obviously in China, this does not happen. And here's Jude Blanchett. Why do you think Chinese policymakers have chosen to implement these measures now and with so much urgency? I think there's a proximate reason and an ultimate reason. The proximate reason, which I think gets to the heart of the why right now, is we have just officially entered what we could call 20th Party Congress season. Next year at the 20th Party Congress, sometime in the late fall, Xi Jinping will take a third term as the general secretary. And while that feels like it's a very long time away, planning and action around a party congress usually starts about 12 to 14 months before, which is precisely where we are now. And indeed, the recently announced sixth plenum, which will take place this November, it's worth noting that a plenary session of the Central Committee, especially the sixth one, is usually dedicated in part to actual formal planning of the 20th Party Congress. So what's happening right now, I think, is Xi Jinping is pushing for and beginning to create some momentum behind policymaking that'll sustain really over the next year. The ultimate reason why, even if you take out the political calendar, I think there's an agreement that if we pull the thread on any given regulatory action, whether that's on data security, whether that's on overseas listings, whether that's cracking down on some of these sectors like education where the party feels like there's too much profit and profit incentive driving industry growth, you know, all of these have their own individual rationales to them. And I think all of these are intuitable. But at its core, I think what's going on is there has always been a lag between where a sector or technology, how far it's able to get ahead of the regulatory apparatus, and when regulators finally realize there's a problem and start to crack down. And that time lag has always been structural in nature. It is the case that technological development in almost any country gets ahead of where the regulators understanding the technology is. But I think this was becoming almost existential for the Communist Party. You had these areas around platform economy and these private companies hoovering up massive amounts of data that I think COVID-19 showed the Communist Party that these private companies just had far too much data, so they wanted to fully and finally break the back of that time lags. And so I think what that means moving forward is you're going to see a much more proactive regulatory posture rather than one that's always on its heels and is racing to catch up. And just a final note, you know, it was the case that really for a lot of these, especially the tech platforms, there really wasn't much regulation around them. And that had created this perspective that this was kind of a wild west. And as we think about the Communist Party's view of technology and governance, I think that was just an untenable situation. And so they've moved aggressively to crack down. And I suspect that's going to be the posture moving forward. And so we are hearing narratives about the Communist Party. This is all about power. It's about targeting the private sector, reestablishing the supremacy of the state over the private sector. Does any of that resonate with you? We could have had that conversation about the party reasserting control over the private sector six months ago, a year ago, 18 months ago, 24 months ago. That has been a secular trend, 
especially in the second term of Xi Jinping starting in 2017, that we've been in this prolonged period of the party asserting dominance over the private sector. And this has happened in the reassertion of the role of party cells in companies. This has been installing the Communist Party in corporate governance structures within private firms. This has been about passing the intelligence law, which mandated that private sector companies must participate in any national security investigation. So in a sense, this is not a new trend that we're seeing here by any stretch of the imagination. And I think it's important that we don't see this as a sudden lurch towards nationalization or party authority, because to do so would be to ignore the trend that's been occurring since 2016 or 2017. You could argue that this is an amplification of that trend, but Anyone thinking that the party just suddenly discovered that the private sector had levels of autonomy that it was uncomfortable with hasn't been paying attention for much of the last several years. One thing I should note, though, there's been some speculation that the party has just become more robustly socialist and is moving to fundamentally rectify capitalism in China. I think that's a misreading of this. As we saw with Xi Jinping's announcement that they're going to create a new stock exchange in Beijing. The party is trying to strike a balance between ensuring that the party has sufficient levels of oversight and control over market mechanisms, while also ensuring that China is able to maintain a sufficiently robust, albeit constrained, capital, technology, and talent market. They're not looking to move away from markets wholesale. What Xi Jinping is trying to do is ensure that markets are leveraged to drive strategic outcomes that redound to the Communist Party and the national goals that China has. I think in the construct of the party wants and needs markets, it just wants to make sure that markets serve national interests. But even if that is the case, the question is whether these shifts will ultimately harm innovation and the longer term growth trajectory of the country. David Lee is not particularly concerned, but Magnus is. Here's Lee. Are you concerned that we'll see less innovation as this regulation comes down on key industries? I am concerned in the short run because this does send waves of shocks among investors because the way is very abrupt, is very sudden, very impolite to understate. So I am concerned in the short run that there will be a shortage of investment in many sectors in the Chinese economy. However, in the slightly longer future, in one or two years, I am not concerned. Why? Because the Chinese economy has three things working for innovation. Number one, still China has a huge market, huge market for good or for bad. The U.S. policy under President Trump, which to some extent is still ongoing in restricting export, high-tech export to China, actually pushes the Chinese demand for domestic high-technology parts, high-technology goods. And that's the first thing, big market. Second thing is China still has a huge amount of capital. China's liquidity measured by cash plus bank deposit is two times as large as Chinese GDP. U.S. is about, after so many runs of QEs, is about 100%, China's 200%. And the Chinese economy is two-thirds of the U.S. economy. So overall, Chinese has much more liquidity ready for investment. The third thing, which I think most important, is this. China has 8 million college graduates each year. Out of these 8 million college graduates, how many percentage actually have majored in 
pure engineering, not sciences, not the physics, not the mathematics, pure engineering, 40%. 40% of Chinese college graduates of 8 million have majored in each year after year, okay? Majored in engineering. So 3.2 million. How large is 3.2 million college graduates engineering? That's larger than the U.S., the graduates of engineering, plus Europe, plus India, plus Japan. It's a huge number. And also uh, coming from Tsinghua University, which traditionally was engineering school, I can vouch that the average quality of Chinese training of engineers in college is very good, maybe too good because they're very practical. The Chinese college education is very brutal. You know, they don't teach them Homer. They don't teach them philosophy. They don't teach them literature. From day one, in most colleges, they just teach them engineering. It's too technical. For good or for bad, these kids coming from college can jump into companies, can start designing things. Whereas U.S. engineering graduates are wonderful. They are very well trained. But early on, they have to get more training after graduate. So these are the three things making me still optimistic after a short period of time about the future of Chinese investment in technology. And here's Magnus. You've got a number of different examples where the government or the state is intervening in the operational management of companies, whether it's by threat or by diktat or by punishing the chief executives or by training sessions. Party officials in party committees have to be present in any company that's got more than three party members. So all of this adds up to a different sort of modus operandi for private firms from the one in which we've come to grow to expect and see in years gone by. So the question I pose really is, what does this do for their innovative capacity? We often kind of conflate invention like science and tech stuff that we can use and we can see with innovation, which is basically a business decision about organization and management and marketing and branding and commercialization and profitability and so on. And if you introduce more and more government regulation and more and more government restriction on what companies are allowed to do, what does that say about the potential for private firms to be in pole position of China as they have been for the last two or three decades? My hunch, you know, really is that this is leading China because of the importance of the politics to the Communist Party in China down an economic path they wouldn't normally or otherwise have chosen to go. So I think it's going to add to the structural economic headwinds that we already know about in China, and it will reduce, I think, China's trend growth, and it'll complicate or delay the realization of the holy grail that everybody's looking for, which is more productivity, because that's how we grow in the future. The big problem, apart from you know debt and demographics, is China's, like many countries, has reached a kind of a productivity hiatus. It needs to basically do a reset which basically requires reform. But actually, that reform isn't really on the agenda. And I think this political intervention, um, regulatory and political intervention, is going to set that back quite significantly. And of course, the key question is whether China is still investable amid all of these regulatory and policy shifts. Again, David Lee and Fred Hu are discretionarily optimistic. Here's Lee on where he thinks opportunity for investment still lies. There are areas which the government under Xi Jinping would guard tightly. There are social and political media areas, cultural areas, in which the government worries that its authority, its control 
its influence will be compromised by external investors. I think outside these areas, all investment will be welcome. In the past few years, look at Jack Ma. He has been venturing into many, many media companies. Many, many media companies. These people may not know. He's got about 29 provincial level media companies. He's got the South China Morning Post. This kind of investment sends alert to the government. So in other words, if I were 30 years younger, if I were trying to do business in China, I will concentrate on technology. I will not bother media. I would not bother the mathematics teaching for young kids, trying to let them outcompete their other schoolmates. I will do my own business. I will try to be a hero in my own area. I wouldn't try to make comments on areas like politics or international relations. So in a way, I think this is a new era of China. But for the lack of better words, professionalism. Business is business. Politics is politics. Don't mix them. And this is also true for many officials under investigation. They got involved in business. They got corrupt. This logic is consistent, right? That's the culture. That's the new era. And here's Fred Hu on why he's optimistic about investment in China tech, despite the near-term uncertainty, and what he looks for in deciding whether a company is a good investment. There are clearly some legitimate concerns in the short term because there's lack of communication, lack of clarity, how far the government would go, when is enough is enough, right? So the host of short-term uncertainties. So I do understand why some investors may be frightened, but I believe very strongly the China tech will weather the current rough storms. Most of the Chinese tech companies will be able to adjust and adapt, therefore, you know, continue to achieve very strong growth, obviously bring their business model and the practices in better compliance with the tighter regulatory environment. I think it would be a mistake to ignore the opportunities in China tech. Should investors be more optimistic about the hard tech sectors versus the soft tech sectors? Clearly, the current regulations affect the consumer internet sector most, right? from fintech, e-commerce, from social media to gaming, from food delivery to ride-hailing, and last but not least, ad tech. So by and large, all these businesses are consumer-facing and store a massive amounts of data on their platform. So these type of companies are impacted most by the current regulatory actions. So I do agree that the hard tech, notably semiconductors, you know, industrial automation, robotics, etc., you know, have been completely spared from the recent tech crackdown altogether. I would also add Medtech, including medical devices and pharmaceuticals, is also left unscathed or untouched. More importantly, clean tech, everything from renewable energy, you know, electrical vehicles to batteries, continue to receive strong government support. So there are vast spaces in the broad tech sector that are largely unaffected by what's going on of the last few months and continue to survive in a largely benign regulatory environment. So definitely, if someone is thinking about the regulatory risk, these are areas almost like safe havens. But I would also say, even consumer internet, there's still a lot of opportunities. Tightening regulations, anti-monopoly, data protection, 
you know, consumer <laughs> privacy protection, you know, those are going to happen regardless in China and elsewhere. Does it mean that's the end of tech investment opportunities in that? Far from it. In the China, but the U.S. are the two largest consumer internet or consumer tech economies or digital economies, e-commerce and fintech and digital health, entertainment in social media. Yeah, I think they'll still continue. There, you have to make some adjustments, some pivoting how you run your business or interface with your users. But I do think the companies in these sectors will continue to succeed, you know, if they are very thoughtful, trying to really make some necessary changes. So there's still a lot of growth opportunities out there. And so therefore, investors should not ignore consumer internet, despite clearly some of the most significant regulatory uncertainties, certainly in the short term. So as an investor, how do you discern which companies in that sector are still great investment growth opportunities and ones that aren't going to be able to pivot as easily and do as well under the new regulations? Yeah, well, at the risk of oversimplification, I would say it's reasons we clearly pay close attention to, namely the underlying technology. The better technology, the more interesting the company has uh, investment target and B, the business model. So given technology, you know, let's say AI, different companies develop different business models to tap the opportunities and so they can capture more market share and the third, I would say, is really leadership and talent. So that including the culture and also, in, frankly, in terms of you know, compliance culture, right? So as they get the bigger and the more successful, if they have broad-minded leadership, they will recognize the increasing scrutiny they're going to get and the disproportional increased responsibilities on their shoulders to make sure tech remains a force for good. So technology business model, and the leadership quality. Those three things I would be most focused on right now or mid-long term. But George Magnus and Jude Blanchett advise investors to tread cautiously. Here's Magnus. If you look at any company or any sector or index that's dropped 40 to 50% in the space of six months, a bell goes off and it says value. (laughs) But I do think this is something that people need to think about, actually, very carefully, because China is not your run-of-the-mill investment universe for reasons that we've been talking about, which is intervention of politics in the extreme, but also because the transparency of companies is not the way that we normally expect. I think the balance between the risk and the opportunity is shifting here towards what risk am I taking and what don't I know rather than what do I know. So my hunch is it's not to say that you can't make money in Chinese market, or you can't find companies that will be able to deliver good returns. But I think it's a much riskier and a much more dangerous market than we thought it was six months ago. I don't think this is a momentary event where something has happened that's made the government react, and then in six months' time, it'll revert and it'll all be forgotten. This is pretty serious stuff. And, you know, it's pretty serious stuff politically which is a pointer, I think, to the way things will continue to evolve for the foreseeable future. And I think that should put us on edge, really. So caution would be the right watchword, I think. And here's Blanchett. I think it's a brute reality that increasingly Xi Jinping is calling the shots 
in relative isolation, especially compared to the level of collective decision-making we had 10 or so years ago. There are still extraordinarily impressive individuals at the top of the regulatory bodies. That's undeniable. But increasingly, these are political decisions that are being made that the regulatory bodies are having to respond to rather than consultative regulatory decisions that are the outcome of more robust group decision-making. And so I think we have to start recognizing that this type of surge campaign, uncoordinated, sudden shock decision-making is going to be a regular feature now, and especially after the 20th Party Congress. For investors who've been able to sideline politics up till now, I think that's an untenable position moving forward because a lot of these decisions are at root political in nature, which means that the regulatory system in China, as much as investors will be caught off guard or in a position of having to respond to political decisions lobbed over the wall by Xi Jinping. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. Indeed, it's going to get worse as his level of authority and control over the political apparatus continues to strengthen, as it appears likely to do, especially after the 20th Party Congress. Next year's 20th Party Congress is not like a normal party congress. One of two things is going to happen. Xi Jinping is either going to take a third term as general secretary. And if that's the case, that's momentous. That is a fundamental break with four decades of thinking within the party about the need to move away from centralized power so that way the party avoids some of the catastrophes of the Mao era. Or otherwise, Xi Jinping won't take a third term as general secretary, which will be equally as important because one year out, we have no idea who a possible successor would be. And so we're all going to be scratching our heads when we see who this is. But my point is, this is not a normal party congress Xi Jinping is no longer the type of ruler he was in 2016, where he was still having to establish and solidify his own power base. He is now the dominant, uncontested leader of an increasingly autocratic political system. And expecting that political system is just going to operate like it did 10 years ago, I think is an outdated approach here. We're seeing the world's second largest economy with an increasingly sophisticated, complex, at the same time, unpredictable sort of economic and regulatory apparatus moving forward under a political system, which is becoming increasingly autocratic. And we've not seen anything like this really ever. As the regulatory and policy environment in China continues to evolve, we'll be closely watching the implication for China's economy, its markets and beyond. I'll leave it there for now. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe at Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or comment. I'm Allison Nathan. Thanks for listening to Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, and I'll see you next time. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. 
In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.